It was a Wednesday, or was it a Tuesday? I'd lost track of time. My brain was spinning from the events of last week. Silicon Valley, Credit Suisse, First Republic, Jerome Powell. What did it even mean? After reading a tweet saying the US banking system was doomed, I resolved to withdraw my life savings and buy Dogecoin and GameStop. Only fools wouldn't diversify. In the midst of the chaos, I... I heard a glimmer of hope, the soothing voice of Patrick Scott on the highly informing, overperforming Wall Street Weekly on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Only they could quell the fear in my heart. Maybe they could be the people we needed to guide our nation through this crisis. Maybe. What a intro. Uh, we would like to give a special thanks to Joe Calazzi, host of Elephants in the Room, for submitting that one. I don't know what you think, Patrick. I thought that was fantastic. Maybe he... He overthinks our influence a little bit, but I'd rather have him think that way. Yeah, I laughed pretty hard when I heard that the first time. I, I think it's great. And, you know, as someone who gets to work this show each week, I can assure our audience that Patrick Scott does indeed have a calm and soothing presence and is the voice of reason for the show, so we thank you for that, Patrick. But we, we've got a lot to cover this episode, and, of course, as Joe mentioned, we'll be talking about the bank failures that have happened over the last two weeks and what it means to the U.S. investor, and what it means for your money. But before we talk about the complexities within the banking system, it's important that we have an understanding of banking and bank runs on a very basic level. So for that, I'm going to turn it over to that soothing voice, uh, Patrick Scott. Maybe you can enlighten us just a little. All right, time to soothe. Let's go. So to understand a bank run, I guess I would say we first have to understand what a bank is. Um, and this might seem like a basic idea, but I think we need to nail it down uh, before we get into bank runs. So a bank is basically a business like any other, except its product is money itself. Banks don't just hold your money in a vault. That's important to notice. They, they take that money and they off, often loan it out to others at a certain interest rate, which is how they make money on a basic level. But they also pay money in interest for you giving your money to the bank in the first place. So the rate at which they loan out the money has to be higher than the rate they pay you for being able to use your money in order to make, to make a profit. I hope all that made sense. But George, why do they choose to pay their clients in interest? Yeah, it's pretty basic supply and demand, right, that you've got many banks competing. They want to be able to loan out money for mortgages, whether that be at 6 or 7%. And yeah, they would love to be able to pay you 0% on your bank accounts, but they have to compete with other banks, so that drives up the interest rate. Okay, so this can result in a problem. If someone can't pay back a loan to a bank, it can look bad for the bank's reputation. And that can make the people who gave their money to the bank in the first place think that the bank might not be able to give them their money back uh, if they ask for it. So they decide out of worry to make a withdrawal. And when people see other people making a withdrawal, they want to get their money out too before it's too late. And this becomes a bank run, which we will get to in depth in a bit. You're saying that if other customers of the bank see a bank losing money because the people they're loaning out their money to aren't being able to pay that back, they might get worried that, okay, how is this going to affect the bank's bottom line? And then they'll rush to pull their money out. Right. So... To get onto a bit of a human level, trusting others, even a bank, with your money is not a naturally easy thing to do for us humans. We we work hard for our money, so obviously we don't want to lose it or see it go to waste. And that's why the banking industry can be fragile sometimes. 
And this is a shaky level of trust that can compound bank problems, which causes recessions and depressions ultimately. These are national economic problems, which is why the federal government steps in via the Federal Reserve, uh, which uses many different measures to prevent things like this. So a bank run is when investors remove their money from a bank because they believe the bank will fail. So George, I guess what happens when your money is in a bank and the bank fails? What normally happens is all our listeners, or I'm guessing a majority of our listeners, are going to be under that FDIC threshold of $250,000 for an account. And that's really important because that's saying the government is guaranteeing your money in these financial institutions. In the case of SVB, which we'll talk about later, the government swooped in and paid out uninsured as well as insured depositors and seized the bank's assets. But when a bank fails, they're not able to pay out every single customer in full. Uh, so if the government wouldn't have swooped in and taken over SVB, for example, they still would have had an obligation to pay out their uh, pay out their customers, whether that be like 60 or 80 cents on the dollar. Okay, gotcha. So bank runs... Uh, it, it got its name because, as we talked about in, a little bit in the rise of the retail investor episode, you had to be physically present to make trades and transact money with banks since the term originated in the pre-electronic finance era. So, therefore, everyone made a run on the bank, so to speak, to remove their money. And this is what we see in the movie It's a Wonderful Life, uh, for example, where like the main character has to find a way to pay everyone who has money uh, in the bank. And an example from history, so... One historical bank run was from the Panic of 1873, where a large bank issued many railway bonds after everyone saw how well the industry was doing. Then a multitude of things happened, uh, like fires in, in cities like the Great Chicago Fire, uh, the demonetization of silver, um, a, a, just a bunch of different things that caused the bank reserves to drop. And then everyone wanted their money back at the same time, so they made a run on the bank. What you can maybe think of happening here is... For example, in the Great Chicago Fire, people are looking around and they said, okay, the bank owned 20 houses that just burnt down and they used their money to, to pay for those houses. What if they don't have, what if my money was in those houses, like was used to pay for those houses? So then they go to the bank and enough people create this mob mentality where the bank isn't able to pay out everyone in full at that moment in time and is forced to close its doors. So is it kind of like each dollar bill has a name on it? Like each dollar that I give to the bank, they know it's my dollar, even though they might put it to use for something else. I think that's one way to look at it. Yeah, it's not not necessarily, oh, they know that your dollar is in the Morgan's house or that sort of thing. But you do have a dollar that you're entitled to. And their goal is to make sure that all their assets, everything that they own, they could theoretically sell those quick enough and give you back your money and still have some left over, ideally. So onto the causes of bank runs, they're essentially triggered by fear in a way, which makes it a psychological game. So note that the incidents of bank runs are often called panic, like the panic of 1873. So mob mentality overwhelms quite easily. So when people express doubts and concerns about the bank, it compound and it can result in a run on the bank. Also, volatile changes in the market can heavily contribute to bank runs. As in the case of 1873, railroad investments spiked and they reached enormous levels before it came down uh, when some investors expressed doubts in the bank and withdrew their money so it can it can work as a bubble too and as for the effects of bank runs 
they often cause banks to just totally fail, um, which is what the investors originally fear when they start the bank run. So ironically, the fear of a bank failure is actually what causes the bank failure. And that leads people to wonder, are there banks now that don't have assets to cover if every depositor wanted their money back, but we just don't know it because every depositor hasn't you know, demanded their money back? And that's the general un- instability or fear within the banking system that we see today. So when people lose money, there's less money moving around the national economy. And this is where recessions and depressions come in. And George, I know you're the uh, econ expert, at least in the room. So, I mean, GDP is basically sort of a measure of how much money is being recycled through the country, sort of, in a way, right? It can tell us how many purchases or sales are happening within the economy at a given time. And I think bank failures are generally more of a result of a contraction of GDP. In this case, we've seen GDP contract, I believe, the last two quarters. And because of that, asset prices are going down which affects the banks and has caused them to lose a lot of value um, and that margin of safety, which they need to ensure deposits from their customers. So to prevent bank runs after the 2008 recession, the FDIC, which is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, raised deposit insurance up to $250,000. So basically, if I understand this correctly, if you have $250,000 in the bank, all of that is insured even if the bank fails. Even if the bank fails, the government will pay out up to 250000 in one bank. And then if you have four accounts, each with $249,000, and all four banks go under, you're still going to be guaranteed that close to a million dollars. And with that, we'll move on to massive current event story. Uh, as you heard in the intro, Silicon Valley Bank, this happened, I guess this happened over our spring break, uh, George. So we haven't exactly had the most... We haven't been the most up-to-date like we try to provide you guys, but I think it might actually be an advantage for us. It gives us the ability to take a step back and at least to a certain extent digest what, what really took place in the Silicon Valley bank run. And I will say, Patrick, some of this stuff gets pretty dense. So if ever you don't understand what I'm saying, I just want you to stop me and uh, make sure we have all those clarified. And this is actually probably going to end up being a multi-week story just because of how complex the situation is, but at the same time, how relevant we, we believe it is to our listening audience. And this is kind of why we made the show again, because everyone is hearing about Silicon Valley Bank, but most people probably don't uh, understand what's all, what all is going on. Before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, they were a huge player in the banking industry, very much in that Silicon Valley region of California. A lot of young budding entrepreneurs, that's where they put their, their company's money or, or venture capital, which we defined, I believe, in the, in the third episode. In fact, they were the 16th largest bank in America, which makes this bank failure the second biggest in our nation's history. The interesting part of this story, which has been brought up and and you doubtless have heard, is that they would have had to be worth $250 billion to fall under increased regulatory scrutiny under the Dodd-Frank Act. They had $209 billion in assets. They were really close to that threshold. The funny thing is, the Dodd-Frank Act was revised in 2018, and they lobbied very hard for the amount to be increased from $50 billion to $250 billion. SVB did that. They they pushed for it to go to 250 As well as many other regional banks, but yes, SVB did push very hard for this. However, I think there's a narrative out there with a lot of people that Silicon Valley Bank was really unregulated and free to his own devices, 
that $250 billion threshold would have meant a lot more regulations. However, there should have been enough regulations in place to stop them from doing what, what ended up happening. So each year, Silicon Valley Bank, along with any bank that had over $50 billion in deposits, they were subject to two stress tests. These include sharp declines in GDP, high unemployment, poor equity and real estate performance, um, among other things. In theory, those should cover most of the basis for things that, that would probably lead to a banking banking crisis. So what do these tests do or what will they um, encourage the banks to do if they find out something is wrong with these tests? What they do is they, they show the banks where their weaknesses are and regulators where these banks need to shore up. For example, real estate. They might say, hey, real estate falls by 50%. I don't know exactly what that number is when they did it. I think it was in 2020 they did real estate. And then the regulators go through and say, Every asset on your balance sheet that has to do with real estate loses 50% of its value. What happens then? Are you still able to pay all your depositors if they come knocking on your door? However, there is one specific scenario they didn't cover, and that's if interest rates were going to go up on U.S. Treasuries. U.S. Treasuries meaning U.S. Treasury bonds? Yep, the U.S. Treasury bonds. And interestingly enough, these long-term bonds were treated as cash equivalents. As you might remember, well, you probably don't remember, but as our listeners might remember, in 2008, a big problem with the banks is the U.S. government didn't require them to have a ton of cash on hand. So they were really over leveraged. And mortgage-backed securities, those could be counted as cash. So once the housing market bubble popped, for lack of a better word, these banks that were supposed to have cash to pay out their depositors, they lost 50% of their value or whatever that specific number is for that scenario. So with the cash equivalents thing, just to make sure I've got this down. So the treasury bonds are counted as uh, cash. So they can be qualified as um, part of the reserves that a bank has to have in case um, something bad happens and they need to be able to pay off, pay their people. Yeah. And after 2008, a big concern was, why don't the banks have enough cash to, to pay us back? So the government said, mortgage-backed securities, we can't have those as cash. Obviously, they weren't as stable as cash. However, treasuries are as good as cash, which means that you can easily sell them and, and acquire cash. And, and that's the logic behind that is there's such a big market for U.S. treasuries that you can sell them pretty much instantaneously that if the banks need cash, they can just get it from the U.S. treasury market. I can see why they would choose treasury bonds over cash because if you just choose cash it's just sort of lying around but you can actually make money off of interest with treasury bonds right yeah that was the logic behind it and as a bank why wouldn't you try to earn interest on on the cash you have lying around but silicon valley's problem was actually having too much treasuries because they lost a lot of value over the past 8 12 months how do they lose value if just at a set rate of what 6% interest that's the point. When they bought the bonds, they were at very low interest rates. As you'll remember, the last few years before the COVID pandemic, interest rates were extraordinarily low. So I'll, I'll do a little thought experiment. I have a 30-year bond that pays out $2 every year, and I bought it in 2020 for $100. However, today I can get $5 every year from an $100 30-year bond. Now I'm going to give you the decision, Patrick. Do you want something that pays out five dollars a year or do you want two dollars every year i suppose i would second option if i see it correctly because the more cash i have on hand sooner the less um 
Would it be less affected by inflation in that case? Money today is worth more than money in 30 years. And the only difference is you get your $100 two years quicker, but you get an additional $3 every year with these 5% bonds that you can invest over time and build your wealth that way. So you're saying that you wouldn't pay $100 for something that you can earn 2% on if you can earn 5% on something today. Right. What that means is that you would only be willing to buy a 2% bond if it was cheaper than $100. Or put another way, you would be willing to pay less money for the 2% bonds than for the 5% bonds. Yes. And that's exactly what happened to SVB because people didn't want the bonds that they bought in 2018, 2019, 2020 because they were paying out such a low rate. So when people demanded that they have their deposits back, SVB was forced to sell those 2% bonds for $55 or $60 that they paid $100 for a couple years ago. Is it the U.S. Treasury Department or the Fed, uh, the Federal Reserve that sets the um, rates for the Treasury bonds? Because it seems like it's almost their fault for setting them so low that uh, investors didn't want any more. And so SVB had to sell them at that low rate. And that's why a lot of people are actually upset with uh, the Federal Reserve is that they've kept rates so low for such a long time that people say it's artificially low. And when we've had to raise rates, we haven't been able to do it gradually. So places like SVB could slowly sell some of their bond portfolio as it goes up a quarter of a percentage point every four months or six months. We've been raising rates by 75 basis points or, or 50 basis points, which as you'll remember, or half and three quarters of a percent that many of these banks have been just hoping that, okay, maybe they'll start cutting interest rates and we won't lose as much money. But rates have only gone up. Banks have only lost more money. And places like SVB, when depositors come calling, their assets have depreciated by close to 50% in a lot of cases. Okay. One thing that does bear mentioning, though, is how U.S. accounting standards also played a role in SVB's poor decision making. Under current reporting rules, when businesses spend money to hedge or ensure long-term bonds, the premium that they spend hits the bottom line immediately, meaning it reflects poorly on their income statement or what their profit is for that year. In addition, it can't be recorded with the sale of the bond. For example, if you bought a 10-year insurance policy on an $100 30-year bond, and spent $2 on the policy, you wouldn't be able to spread out that loss over 10 years when you would have the interest income from the bond to cancel out the expense. It would have to be recorded immediately. What makes this policy even odder is that accounting standards allow for gradual realization of insurance expenses on many other assets, including shorter-term bonds. Hedging risk looks bad on a bank's income statement in the short term, so many have speculated that it was actually a large reason that SVB didn't insure against an interest rate hike. The government should be looking for ways to incentivize conservative banking practices and to design their policies in such a way that incentivizes long-term thinking. Even so, all banks should be willing to sacrifice short-term profit profitability to ensure the stability of the bank for years to come. And finally, what about this bailout that we've been hearing about? So in bailing out all the depositors, the government will get whatever portion that those clients would have gotten. So SVB, they did go out of business, but they still have treasury bonds. They still have other assets, just not on a one-to-one -one basis. So your dollar worth of deposit, you might only have 80 cents worth of assets. However, the government can still acquire those from SVB. There's actually an auction for those assets going up and the government will 
recoup some of it, but this bailout does create what we call a moral hazard for depositors. And the idea is the fact that the government paid out people who put over hundred or $250,000 in the bank, they insured those people, even though that money was technically uninsured. Okay. So are they trying to bail out, maybe we'll get to this, but are they trying to bail out the banks? Or are they trying to bail out the people who are putting money in the banks? They're trying to bail out the people who are putting money in the bank. They didn't save SVB. But the problem with this is a company like Roku, they put millions and millions of dollars in one account in this bank. And people are arguing, why should the government bail out that they made a poor decision? They knew that they were uninsured after they went over that $250,000 mark, they could have easily put their money in different banks or, or different assets and had it insured. But no, they just plopped a bunch of money in SVB Bank and the government is going to bail out their poor decision making. Right, yeah. A and that creates an incentive in structure for companies in the future to not really look at how stable banks are. They're just going to put their money in banks that pay the highest interest rate, regardless of how risky they are, because they believe the governments are going to bail them out. So in bailing out the people who put their money in the bank um, under 250000 they help the bank. They, they, they bail out the bank as well. Under 250000 that was what's guaranteed. And the thing about that is... SVB had been paying the government premiums to get insured by the FDIC. SVB has actually partially paid for the insurance that they got access to for the depositors under $250,000. That's not the case with the depositors over $250,000. So people are mad because if you deposit more than that amount of money in a bank, there's an expectation that you can lose it all. But Patrick, I will say that as much as we've talked today and tried to cover the basics of bank runs, there is so much more that we haven't even scratched the surface of, which is why I think this needs to be a two-part episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about Credit Suisse and also UBS and that purchase, what that means for the banking system as a whole, and how our audience can interpret some financial instruments to see the health of the, the banking sector, or at least what investors think the health of the banking sector is. Okay, sounds good. Well, it's too bad that we don't have a outro that's as cool as the intro. But we'll have to leave you with that. And we want to thank our audience for joining us on Wall Street Weekly. If you missed any portion of this show or any past shows, we've got a link to our transistor feed up at Wall Street Pod on Twitter. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. <laughs>